Don't let a DUI charge ruin your life. Get a professional and confidential evaluation from our experienced team at True Heights Treatment. Our evaluations are accepted by the majority of courts in the state of Illinois and provide a comprehensive assessment of your substance use patterns and potential treatment needs. Get the help you need today and start your path to a brighter future. Contact us now to schedule your evaluation at 708-248-7039 or at thtdui.com. The George Brassy Podcast is made possible with funding provided from Brassy Global Strategies, LLC, a leading political consulting, public policy, government affairs, and research firm. Are you interested in running for elected office? Need advice? Call or email George, 708-769-5015. Brassy Global Strategies 1 at gmail.com. podcast attorney mario reed mario thanks for coming on thanks for having me mario before we get into some issues that you're really interested in the practice of law i want to know a little bit about your journey to becoming one of the top attorneys um, in the southland so tell us about that yeah yeah so it was like i imagine lots of people's journeys are where it didn't start out in that direction as growing up I actually wanted to be a cartoonist as a child. That was my passion. And then my father crushed those dreams and told me that cartoonists are going to end up as starving artists. So I instantly gave that dream up and then uh, later decided that I wanted to be a journalist like my eldest sister, Marcia, who at the time was a writer for Black Enterprise and uh, several other national publications. So then I went and attended school at Columbia College here in Chicago and ran into a professor who suggested that law might be a better fit for me because I wanted to do more than just write about things, but actually play a part in making certain changes and things like that. So that professor, Mike Dumpke, he inspired me to pursue law school. And that's what it is that led to the passion for law. And then from there, just a lot of time working, seeing a lot of different things, worked inside the county jail, as well as worked with the Cook County Clerk's Office, Cook County Recorder Deeds Office, and just saw the need and the opportunity for uh, legal assistance in a, in a way and an approach that doesn't really happen all that often. So that's how the journey got me to where it is that I am today. And it didn't start out as such, but I'm very happy where it's led to and how it's ended. So prior to going into private practice, you work in the public sector for a couple of years. Yes, actually for about eight years. So I spent um, a year with the Cook County Department of Corrections. I worked inside of the jails, Division One and Division Five, where I would assist inmates with preparing their legal cases whenever they were representing themselves pro bono, as well as individuals who were just interested in finding out more about their cases. Then from there, I went and did a year with the city of Chicago, and I was the head of the e-discovery program. So I was responsible for turning over the emails for Mayor Rahm Emanuel at the time, as well as uh, numerous other public officials within the city of Chicago for the entire city of Chicago. And then after that, I went and spent five years with the Cook County Recorder of Deeds office, where I was the head of the property fraud unit. And that's where it is that I was introduced in large part to just 
how easy it is for people to be taken advantage of, especially seniors. Uh, and then from there, spent another approximately year with the Cook County Clerk's Office. And there I was the deputy for planning and development and was really instrumental in helping recorder Yarbrough transition to her role as Clerk Yarbrough. Mario, those all sound like really great jobs serving the public, and they sound like they they probably pay well and have a lot of benefits. What leads you to want to go out on your own and start your own private practice? So it's actually very unique and interesting as one of the other things that I spent a lot of time doing with the recorder's office and the clerk's office was community outreach. And I was... I don't want to say given an ultimatum, but I was encouraged that if I wanted to continue to do the community outreach that I had in mind of discussing things just more than what was going on at the recorder's office or at the clerk's office, then I was going to need to go and do it in a private practice capacity because that was the only way that I was going to ensure I wasn't having any conflicts of interest or any issues with what was going on at those offices. So it was really the desire to be able to do outreaches for a myriad of topics. So uh, it was not what most people would consider leaving uh, government work for. For me, it was wanting to be able to educate people on things that were outside of the scope and the spectrum of the clerk's office or the recorder's office. It sounds like kind of a desire to be creative was um, fueling your your tr career transition. Um, tell the audience a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur the day you leave government. What's that like for you? Yeah, yeah, that's a frightening that's a frightening day. As I had never been an entrepreneur in my entire life, I started working as a 15 year old with Gordon Food Service Marketplace in Olympia Fields, and I have always worked, uh, oftentimes two and sometimes three jobs. So I was always accustomed to a paycheck, always accustomed to everything being planned out for me. You fill out your W-4 withholding and then everything else magically gets taken care of. So it was a very frightening and intimidating moment because one of the things that most people don't really give much consideration to as it relates to entrepreneurship is that you become everything and you're responsible for everything, not just gaining clients or, or generating revenue, but making sure taxes are being paid, setting up some type of retirement account, uh, ensuring that, uh, in, in my case, all of the IT work, every single facet of the operation you're responsible for. So it was a very frightening moment because I had never been an entrepreneur before and I didn't know how I was going to necessarily get clients and the, the marketing, the advertising component of it. But one of the things that proved to be the most successful um, kind of investment was all of the community outreach that I had done with those governmental offices, because there were numerous people who were aware of me, were familiar with my knowledge base and felt comfortable reaching out and, and hiring me to serve in that capacity. So that first day after, it was definitely very frightening, intimidating because you have no gauge as to what to expect. But one of the things that it did show is that it's uh, more than a possibility and it's simply a matter of how much it is that you want it. So it was a very proving experience. Looking back, um, do you ever do you think you could ever go back to working like 
a day job. Cause I, I know in my own journey as an entrepreneur and with my own practice, I don't feel like I could ever go back to like working for the man, so to speak. How about you? Are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with you as uh, one of the biggest things. And you kind of touched on it earlier. My creativity was what was really kind of inspiring me to, to leave out. And once you've had that unfettered opportunity to be as creative and to try things and to not have to worry about approvals, no bureaucracies, and and just being able to do what it is that you feel is best, it's uh, very tough to think about relinquishing that. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I don't know that it's something that I could ever return to. But as the saying goes, you know, never say never. But as of right now, I'm, I'm very comfortable and confident that this is where I was meant to be and just looking forward to continuing to build it. Mario, one of the areas that initially caught my eye that you specialize in is the question of taxes within Cook County. Can you talk a little bit about your interest in that and what the audience know about dealing with that issue? Yeah, so um, property taxes is one of the biggest uh, passions that I have, especially as it relates to the southern suburbs. And it stems from growing up right in Park Forest and uh, having my roots in the community Park Forest, which right now has the highest average composite property tax rate in all of Cook County, as well as the state of Illinois. So understanding so as a little bit of background so currently my practice is in South Holland Illinois and I live in South Holland Illinois but when I initially was looking to purchase a home it was always my intention to go back home to Park Forest so that was my goal I wanted to move back to Park Forest and I wanted to be instrumental in that community that I love and and knew as the only community that I grew up in Mario Mario, we had a bit of technical difficulty, but we're back together. We were Thanks so much. Potentially moving to Park Forest. Yes. So the, the goal and desire was to move back home to Park Forest. But when I was looking for homes, the homes that I was eligible to afford were tremendously smaller than in other communities, South Haven being one of them. And the reason why I couldn't afford the same size homes was because of the disparity in the property taxes. So for a comparable size home to what I was able to get in South Holland, based on their tax rate being so much lower, I would end up paying between $20,000, $30,000 more in Park Forest, and that didn't include the, the property taxes. So in seeing what it was, how that disparity existed. Initially, I just accepted it and moved to South Holland, but then started to wonder why is that? And it's not something that growing up, I heard about, it wasn't talked about, it wasn't discussed, didn't learn about it in high school. So it really became a passion to understanding why is there such disparity in the property taxes? And then thankfully, as fate would have it, I went and started working with the Recorder of Deeds office, and we would do outreaches with the Cook County Board of Reviews office, as well as the Cook County Assessor's office. And these would be two, three, sometimes four nights a week. So I was getting a very uh, substantial education in the property tax system, 
as well as the property tax appeal system. And then that just helped me understand exactly what the problem is. And then from there, I began doing my own research as it relates to our public school funding formula and how that is the root cause of our property tax issues in the southern suburbs. So it is uh, something that's a passion because for most people, they don't understand it. And then they like to assign blame to the wrong parties. So they'll tell their city council, you're doing a terrible job. Or they'll tell their mayor, you're doing a terrible job. Or uh, even say that the county is stealing all of their tax dollars and being able to help others understand it is a passion. And then also being able to help others save money as little as kind of gets saved, but it still makes a big difference in most people's lives when your mortgage drops a hundred or $200 a month. That is definitely something as an elected official, I, I totally uh, can acknowledge is that a lot of people blame the property tax issue, the high property taxes on the municipality when ultimately they share one of the smaller um, portions of the tax bill. So talk a little bit about what role do the school districts have in, in the issues um, of high property taxes in Cook County? Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's not actually the school districts themselves. It is the state of Illinois. So the reason why property taxes are as high as they are in the southern suburbs is because currently the state of Illinois ranks 50th out of all 50 states in terms of the state contribution. And what that means is, is that on average throughout the nation, most states contribute at least 47 percent to funding their public schools. So that's middle of the road, you know, par for the course, if you will. However, in the state of Illinois, we're not at 40 percent. We're not even at 30 percent. Our state is contributing just 24 percent to funding public schools throughout the state of Illinois. And this is particularly disconcerting because the state constitution, so the, the highest law of the land for the state of Illinois, it indicates that the state has the primary responsibility for financing public schools. So you know, those of us in the, in the legal world understand that primary responsibility to translate oftentimes to at least 50.001%. And in our case, the state is coming up, they're not even doing half of that. So because the state is only contributing 24%, and that number comes from the Board of Education. So it's not a number I came up with, it's the State Board of Education said, this is what the state is contributing. And because of that, the local communities have to end up making up the difference. So as of 2018, local communities had to contribute 68% to funding of their public schools. So what that means is, is that if your school district or all of the schools in your community, let's say that they need $100 million to run their schools, and that's just adequately you know, turning the lights on, having books for the students, desk, and so forth. If they need $100 million between all those different school districts, your local community is contributing $68 million of that money. And that's the problem because certain communities are set up well to do that. If you live in Hinsdale, if you live in Barrington, if you live in Burr Ridge, and you have a median household income of $150,000, your community can handle a, a, a tax bill 
to fund schools with $68 million throughout your community. But in communities such as ours, Chicago Heights, South Holland, Harvey, Ford Heights, Riverdale, our median household incomes are oftentimes less than $50,000 or in that range. So we simply don't have the wealth to fund our public schools by contributing $68 million in order for them to run. So what ends up happening is, is that our tax rates have to increase because we don't have as much wealth. And when we don't have as much wealth, the school district levy has to increase in order to get a larger percentage of what wealth we do have. And that's the issue. So it's not a case where the school districts are, you know, kind of being money hungry or anything like that. They're just trying to be adequate. The problem is, is that the state isn't carrying their burden, and that pushes the burden onto us in our local communities. So even a couple of years back, the state of Illinois changed the formula. What you're saying is the change wasn't enough. Yeah, and that's, again, another one of the misconceptions, because the state of Illinois didn't change the, the funding formula. What they did is they added kind of a new wrinkle, and it's called the evidence-based funding formula or the EBF. That's what it is that sometimes, you know, while you're out and about, you'll hear it referred to as, oh, Illinois changed the funding formula. And, and that's just not true. They didn't change the funding formula. What they did is they adjusted how the, how the funding is kind of allocated. So they're still collecting the same amount of revenue, but what they did is instead of just allocating it evenly, they attempted to allocate it to schools who need the funds more first. So they changed kind of the order of how the money gets to where it gets. The problem is, is that that evidence-based funding formula change simply said that we want to get all of the schools that are below 70% to 70%. So imagine if you change your entire, uh, you know, kind of, how you pay your bills. But when you make that change, you say, I'm only going to make sure that my mortgage is paid to 70%. I'm only going to make sure that my car note is paid to 70%. How well is that going to work out for you? Very interesting. Yeah. Mario, you um, grew up in one of the most unique houses, probably in the South suburbs. Tell the audience a little bit about growing up in the Chinese house in Park Forest. You didn't just grow up in any house in Park Forest. You grew up there. Yeah, yeah. I had the both the, the virtue and I guess you could call it the curse of growing up in the Chinese house in Park Forest. And it was uh, definitely one of the most, uh, well, how should I say, it? interesting aspects of growing up as much like with anything, when you're different, it doesn't always... Uh, get the same response from everybody, especially not children. So growing up, it was uh, it was a bit of mystique, but like all children are, it sometimes they respond to it with hostilities and other times they respond to it with curiosities. So growing up, sometimes I got teased and bullied about it. And other times I got uh, kind of celebrity treatment for it. So it really depended on what crowd I was around at the time. But it was, in retrospect, it was very good because the Chinese house, as it's known, is just Chinese on the outside. On the inside, my father made it a point to be internationally diverse with the room. So the living room is done in a safari style and has 
uh, images from Japan, Mount Fuji. In addition to that, its uh, kitchen is Spanish style, as was the dining room. The basement bathroom was medieval times, European. The basement was done in African style motif with mask. And then the upstairs bathrooms, Native American. So it was an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of diversity and different culture. However, while growing up, as is the case for most things, as a child, you don't really have a true appreciation because you only know it from the standpoint of what people are saying to you about it. So it was uh, it was very trying, but it helped me to develop a sense of self and identity very early. And uh, now I'm very grateful and thankful because it's still a teaching opportunity and people are very aware of it. And so, did dad buy, retrofit the, the outside of the house when you're growing up, or is that already set up by the time you're conscious? No, 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 no. So, uh, so we moved in the summer before I was born. So, my parents they initially had an apartment on the south side, and they had had four children. So, I'm the middle child of nine. I have five brothers and three sisters. And they had been in a small apartment with four children, and they were trying to make matters and ends meet. And uh, it's a funny story because their apartment had been robbed multiple times. But my father had a flute. And on the fourth time when the apartment had been robbed, whomever it was that robbed it decided to steal his flute. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So it was at that moment when my father's flute was stolen that he said, I am moving out of this small apartment in the south side of Chicago. And then he committed himself to purchasing a house. So the summer before I was born in 1981, uh, we they moved into the house and it was a standard house like every other house in Park Forest at that time. And then my father began doing the work in about 91. So I was uh, 10 about 10 years old when he really started to uh, help and assist with the transformation happening. And then from there, he just kept doing work inside and outside and until he got it to the point where he was satisfied. Mario, what are two books you would recommend to the audience that have been influential to you as a person? So uh, How Full Is Your Bucket is the book that I would recommend to every single human being as it is a book that talks about the psychology of um, helping others and what it does for you in your life. And it has really opened my eyes to the importance of helping others and why helping others helps yourself more than it helps others in most instances. So How Full Is Your Bucket would definitely be the number one book that I would recommend. And then after that, I would likely say... Um, for me, this one isn't something that I would necessarily recommend to others, but one that made an impact on, on my life is uh, Bill Clinton's book, My Life. And it was getting an opportunity to understand how someone who becomes the most well-known person in, in the world gets to that point and still seeing that they're a human being that goes through tragedies and triumphs and everything like that. Mario, where can the audience find you on the internet? So our office is uh, 
on the internet, you can go right to Google and type in the law offices of Mario A. Reed. And then our website is www.lawoffices.ofmarioareed.com. Mario, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thanks a bunch for having me. Greatly appreciate it. Enjoy. Take care. Bye. Bye. Help George stay on the Chicago Heights City Council. Go and donate today at tinyurl.com slash aldermangeorge2023. Begin to transform your life and work towards inner peace with expert psychotherapy. At True Heights Treatment, our experienced therapists provide personalized, compassionate care to help you overcome life's challenges and reach your goals. Whether you're struggling with depression, anxiety, relationship issues, or other mental health concerns, our team is here to support you. With a warm and welcoming in-person and virtual office atmosphere and a commitment to person-centered and evidence-based treatments, we are dedicated to helping you address your life's challenges. Contact us now to schedule your first session at 708-248-7039 or online at trueheightstx.com. Book your appointment today and start your journey towards a happier, healthier life. Need more George? Like his pages on Facebook. Friends of George Brassy PAC, Fifth Ward Business Alliance, Chicago Heights Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, and the George Brassy Podcast. Thank you.